Morning, church. My name is Kelsey. Today's Bible reading is taken from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54 to 57. Yeah, verse 54 to 57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Won't you uh, bow with me in a word of prayer before we come to this text? Our Heavenly Father, there's nothing we need more than to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ as he truly is. And we pray that we would see him, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would soften and cut our hearts so that we might see him, might hear him, and through him in the power of your spirit might come to you this morning. Please be with us, we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but I love stories with heroes. I love a story where the good guy wins in the end. In fact, for me, it isn't a good story unless the good guy wins in the end. I don't want to be left hanging. I'm not interested in unresolved. Of course, that's often how stories are told in our day and age. Unresolved, left hanging. That's how stories are told. And the point is, there is no point. There is no resolution. There is no good guy and nobody wins in the end. The whole point is that there is no point. Let me give you one extreme example. Here's the play Breath by Samuel Beckett. I'm going to read the whole thing, so strap yourselves in. Don't worry, the play is only 35 seconds long. You'll be fine. Here we go. Curtain. Faint light on stage littered with miscellaneous rubbish. Hold for five seconds. Faint brief cry and immediately inhale. And slow increase of light reaching maximum together in 10 seconds. Silence and hold for five seconds. Exhale. Slow decrease of light together reaching minimum in 10 seconds. And immediately cry as before. Silence and hold for five seconds. That's the whole story. (laughs) A stage littered with rubbish and one breath. And the point is, of course, that there is no point. Because there's no point to life. That's what Samuel Beckett is trying to communicate to us. There's no point to life. Life is one breath on a garbage heap. No heroes. Nobody wins. We're supposed to enjoy stories like that because they are what real life is like. I do not enjoy stories like that. And it's not just a matter of personal taste. I think they've got it fundamentally wrong. They are not what real life is like. There's another story to tell. Easter Sunday tells that story. It's a story with a hero and a victory. It's the story of Jesus' victory over death. It's our story. The Apostle Paul dedicates a whole chapter in one of his letters to telling this story. Like any good Shakespearean play, there are five acts. 
the battle with death, the origin of death, the shadow of death, the sting of death, and the death of death. Those five. The battle, the origin, the shadow, the sting, and the death of death. So first act, the battle with death. In the whole chapter, death is presented as the enemy of humanity. In fact, Paul calls death the last enemy. Now, if we take a moment to reflect on that, we have to admit that it's true. If we are honest, we spend most of our lives in a frantic fight against this enemy called death. Often that fight is subconscious, but it's always there. We've got many different strategies for dealing with this enemy, but we're always engaged in the fight. Mostly, we just deny it. We ignore it. Sometimes when we occasionally acknowledge it, we pretend that it isn't that bad. We make jokes about it. It's a defense mechanism. We are always trying to delay it, trying to hold it at bay. Think about your discovery points. They're not really about a free smoothie at the end of the month, are they? These are not some sort of smoothie philanthropists. Discovery has deeper motives than that. The truth is they don't want you to die just yet because you've still got premiums to pay. When it comes to death, we delay, we deny, we pretend, and when all that inevitably fails as it must, we just panic. We panic. We saw that in COVID, didn't we? The terror that gripped us during COVID as a society was quite palpable at times. The anger if someone didn't wear a mask, the frenzy and the emotion around vaccinations, whatever side you're on, the anxious retreat into our homes that lasted long after the danger had subsided. We are terrified of death, terrified. And at one level, the fear is entirely justified. Because this is a fight we keep losing. In fact, over the centuries of human history that we've been fighting this fight against death, we are yet to win a single battle. Except maybe one. Everyone in this room will lose. Without exception. That brings us to our last strategy in this fight against death. Surrender. Death was once considered the final frontier in medicine, but those days are gone. We have surrendered. In Canada, since 2016, there have been over 30,000 medically assisted deaths. The acronym is MAD. Medically assisted death. MAD. It's quite fitting, isn't it? We have surrendered. In fact, now we're fighting for the other side. There's a growing opinion that the right thing for humanity to do is to help those who want to die. Help them on their way. 30,000 people, 30,000 in Canada since 2016 put down. Many of them, and this is the scary thing, many of them citing financial debt as their reason for wanting to die. 
we have started pretending that death is our friend rather than our enemy. Death is some sort of refuge, some place we run to. Death is natural. Death is just the peace, the, the peace of a long sleep. There's no doubt about it. We are losing the battle with death. Losing to the point where we've actually joined the other side. But let's take a step back and ask, where did this enemy come from? In the second act of our story, we get a flashback. We are thrown back to the origins of death. We read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, in that same chapter, Paul says these words, Death came through a man, and in Adam all die. He's referencing an ancient origin story. It's the Bible's origin story. And that story says that death came through the first man called Adam, and now all of those who follow after him also die. In other words, and if we had the time, we would go and see this from the origin story itself, but in other words, death is not simply a chemical biological process. Because that's a common story in our culture, isn't it? It goes something like this. We all die. One day the star in our solar system will die. And then life on earth will die. The human story goes from nothing to nothing. And many in our society take that to be self-evident. I mean, how could it possibly be another way? Of course it's true. What are we even talking about? But is it true? And how do we know that it's true? Let me ask the budding physicists and philosophers in the room, how does something come from nothing? How does life come from death? How does the chemistry work? Because that's what our cultural story says. The Bible has a very different story. It says in the beginning there was life. God was life and he gave life to the universe. He gave the gift of life to mankind. But as we read on we discover and as we reflect on our own existence we discover mankind wanted no part with the author of life. We turned our backs on the author of life. We chose death instead. But if you refuse life, and if you turn your back on the author of life, well, of course, death is the only alternative. You've chosen death. So death is in the first place a moral and relational process before it's a physical and biological process. Adam was given the gift of life. He took the gift. He said, no thanks, I'll take it from here. He turned his back. He went his own way. He chose death. We are his sons and daughters. We bear the family likeness. We live with his decision every single day. And every single day we make the very same decision in our own lives. We echo that decision. We choose death. Choosing death is, to, is refusing to live with God as God. We don't want him. We don't want him meddling in our affairs. Thanks for the gift. We've got it from here. Death is moral and relational before it's ever biological. 
And death, like all our choices, has consequences. Act 3, the shadow of death. Paul says, if life ends in death, then, and I'm quoting, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He says the hedonists are right. If life ends in death, then we might as well drown ourselves in pleasure until death arrives. Self-medicate. Anesthetize to numb the pain. Eat and drink, for tomorrow you die. The whole of life becomes one long, drawn-out, medically-assisted death. Palliative care begins at birth. If life ends in death, then Samuel Beckett is right to tell the story the way he does. Life is just one breath on a garbage heap. The point is that there is no point. On this point, Samuel Beckett and the Apostle Paul agree entirely. If life ends in death, there's no point. It's one breath on a garbage heap. You might as well eat and drink, for tomorrow you die. It's a dismal story. It's dismal. But the Bible will go even further. The story gets worse before it gets better. Act 4, the sting of death. We read it this morning. Kelsey read it for us. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. In other words, there's something even worse than death. To paraphrase Paul, the real problem with death is sin. And the real problem with sin is the law. Now, why would that be the case? Well, let's, let's try and reverse engineer this thing. Let's work backwards. Why is the law the real problem? Because it's God's law. There's a living God behind this law, our maker. He's given us his law. Why then is sin a problem? Well, because sin is a breach of God's law. It's it's a breaking of the covenant relationship. It's like adultery in marriage. It's turning our backs on the author of life. Well, why then is death a problem? Death brings you into the presence of the God whose law, whose trust you have broken. And now, there's no more turning your back. Now you face him. You come before him face to face. You face your maker and your judge. In Hebrews 9, in the words of Hebrews 9, man is appointed to die once and after that to face, to face judgment, to face the judge. We don't just stop breathing. We don't just fall into an eternal sleep. We don't just step into a room next door. Pick your euphemism. We don't just get on a lift that takes us up into the golf estate in the sky. We don't just join our forefathers in a big family meeting called the afterlife. The place we go is into the presence, face to face, into the presence of the Almighty, our Maker and our Judge. There is something even more terrifying than death. 
death has a sting. Thanks be to God, the Easter story does not end there. The last act of the Easter story is the death of death. The great announcement at the end of the letter is this. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? He's mocking death. Death has been mocking us all our lives. All of human history, death has been mocking us. The Apostle Paul turns that on its head and he mocks death. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God came to earth as a man. What did we do with God when he came to earth as a man? Have you thought about it? If you ever want proof that we are alienated from God, that in fact we are hostile towards God, that we have turned our backs on the author of life, if you ever want proof, ask yourself, what did we do with God when he came to earth? We killed him. The forces of evil orchestrated all that is dark and depraved within us so that when God came to earth, we killed him. But, one little word that makes all the difference. But, but, death could not hold him. Why not? Because he had no sin. There was no sin in him. He fulfilled the law. He loved his father in perfect loving obedience. And so death lost its sting. And the law lost its power. And the forces of evil were completely disarmed. Christ rose from the dead. He rose in victory. And it's a victory for all of humanity. It's a victory he shares with all of humanity. It's our victory. That victory was for you. He's the new Adam. Listen to how the Apostle Paul says it. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroy, destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What does this mean? It means the death of death. That's what Easter morning proclaims. The death of death. What does it mean for you? Well, for those of you who are frail and sick and nearer the end than you once were, if you belong to Christ, death is not the end. It is merely falling asleep. If you belong to Christ, it is falling asleep. And when you awake, you will be with him. He will welcome you home. He has taken your punishment so that you don't face God as judge. 
If you belong to Christ, your Father will embrace you. If you've lost a loved one, you need to know that death is not natural. Death is not a refuge we run towards. Jesus got angry with death. The tears that he wept at the graveside of Lazarus were tears of outrage. Death is not our friend. Death steals. Death is a thief. Death is an imposter. You're right to be angry. But if your loved one belonged to Jesus, you do not mourn without hope. When you say goodbye, you can say with conviction, I'll see you soon. I will see you soon. For those of you who are weighed down by the pain of this world and all the pointless suffering, you can know with full certainty the light has won. The light has overcome the darkness. There is a hero and he wins in the end. You can keep going in the joyful assurance that this place is not our home. We are headed for a better country. A heavenly one. That's what Easter means. That's why we are rejoicing here this morning. If that's what it means, then the all important question is this. Is it true? I don't think there is a more important question in all of life's big questions than is the resurrection true? Did it happen? See, the question is not whether you like the story. It's not whether it works for you, does something in you, makes you feel better. It's not whether it offends you or whether you prefer another story. Those, those are not the questions. The question is, is it true? Is it just a heartwarming fiction? Or is it true? Because if it's a fiction, well, we might as well eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. What are we doing here? I mean, I'm sure news cafes open. But think with me. Dare to dream with me. Imagine with me. What, is it, what does it mean if it's true? If it's true, it changes everything. Everything. So, did Jesus rise from the dead? The claim of Easter is that he did. Let's deal with some of the standard objections. Five-minute sermons are only for tonight, by the way. First objection. The history of these events was clearly written by people who are biased. Okay, maybe so. But that's like saying that we reject this history because it's written by human beings. Every historian is a human being. Every human being is biased in one way or another. Plutarch wrote the biography of Alexander the Great. Plutarch was clearly a big Alexander fan. He was an Alexander groupie. 
No serious historian rejects his biography as pure fiction. No. They simply try to note and understand his worldview. Now surely if we are consistent, we should treat the Bible in the same way. And what's more, the Bible doesn't seem to bear the usual marks of bias. doesn't seem to be biased in the ordinary ways. The people who are telling the story share some very embarrassing details that you simply would not share if you were just lying to build your movement. Let me give you some examples. The Gospel of Mark is the Apostle Peter's account of what happened. Go and read it. And ask yourself, how does Peter come across in the telling of this story? Let me save you some trouble. He doesn't come across very well. Okay? He doesn't come across in a way that would be helpful to him or to the fledgling movement that he is trying to grow and build. The only possible motive for sharing the story in the way he shared it is that's how it happened. Another example. Critical fact that we are presented with in all of, all of the Gospels. We are presented with the first witnesses of the resurrection. Who are they? They are women. Now, there is no possible way, if those accounts were a fabrication, that you would write that into the fabrication. No possible way in the first century. For the simple fact that women were not considered credible witnesses. A woman could not even give testimony in a court of law. So there is just no way you would write that in unless, unless that's how it happened. It's the only possible motive. C.S. Lewis was a professor of literature at both Oxford and Cambridge universities. He earned his stripes. I think it's fair to say he knew a thing or two about literature and how it works. This is what he writes about the New Testament documents like the Gospel of Mark. And I quote, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, in other words, eyewitness reporting, or else some unknown ancient writer without predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. End of quote. It's not so easy to dismiss the Bible as a fairy tale because it presents itself as a history. It's not so easy to dismiss it as biased because all history is biased. And so you have to dismiss all of history. And it's not so easy to dismiss it as biased because the evidence points in the opposite direction. The way the story is told demonstrates a bias towards truth rather than towards self-promotion. The promotion of some lie that we've cooked up to build our movement. Second objection. Jesus didn't rise because he wasn't actually crucified. The whole thing was a fabrication from start to finish. Problem is, once again, the evidence. The overwhelming weight of evidence, both biblical and extra-biblical, 
secular, non-biblical sources points us in the opposite direction. So let me give you one example. The Roman historian, not Christian, openly hostile to the Christian movement, you'll hear in a moment. His name is Tacitus. He's explaining how Emperor Nero tried to shift the blame for the fire that he started in Rome. Okay? This is what Tacitus writes. To get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, that's you if you're a Christian, that's you if you're a Christian here this morning, a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. The crucifixion happened. There isn't a serious professional historian who questions that as a fact. The crucifixion happened. Okay, so he died. He did die. That much we know. He died and was buried. On the third day, his followers claimed that the tomb was empty. But of course it wasn't. Let's get real. Here's a question. Jesus clearly had many enemies. And he had enemies in high places. You do not execute a rabbi unless you are connected, unless you are powerful, unless you're a power broker of some kind. So if his followers, who by the way had no power, if his followers claimed his tomb was empty in an attempt to keep the movement going because they've got some nice momentum now, all 12 of them, let's keep this thing going, all you needed to do was produce the body. End of story. End of movement. Why didn't they do that? The whole movement hinges on the empty tomb, on the claim that Jesus has risen from the dead. Why not just squash the thing by producing the body? Because the tomb was empty. It actually was empty. Okay, fine. But there are lots of ways to explain the empty tomb. I mean, one popular way is to say that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, that he passed out from the physical exertion, but he resuscitated later and then left the tomb. Does that account actually do any justice to the nature of crucifixion or to the nature of his burial? Crucifixion was capital punishment. And this is the Roman Empire we're talking about. It's capital punishment in the Roman Empire performed by agents of the state. They are not amateurs. This is their nine to five. This is their bread and butter. They know how to kill someone. They've done it before. They even had a foreman who was charged with quality control. And so they would apply standard tests like a spear to the side to see if the blood had separated because that's how you confirm death. Are we just going to ignore the historical record? Because we don't like the story. We're just going to assume they got it wrong. What about his burial? Okay, so the theory goes, he passed out on the cross, but he resuscitated in the tomb. Then what? That stone weighs hundreds of kilograms. It's actually levered into a ditch precisely so that it can't move because they had a problem with grave robbers. Are we to believe that he 
in his resuscitated state, now somehow managed to move it and then flee off. Uh, clearly, I find the scenario weak. I hope that's coming across. Much more compelling is the idea that Jesus' disciples conspired and stole the body for, from the tomb. Of all the objections to the resurrection, this for me is the strongest. This one needs to be contended with and taken seriously. Even so, it faces major, major problems. First, it's a conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theories, as we all know all too well, are so very popular precisely because they do not rely on evidence. You just get to connect the dots as ever, however you see fit. But if we're serious about the truth, we have to consider the evidence. First piece of evidence is the conviction and the posture of the disciples after that first Easter Sunday. Because it changed radically. Before Sunday, David prayed about it this morning. They were hopeless. They were, they were beaten back. They were defeated. They were actually in hiding. They had abandoned their master. It's no exaggeration to say that they were offended and they were humiliated by his death. So what changed? Come Sunday, what changed? How do we explain their newfound boldness in the face of intense political opposition? Their public preaching and their teaching, their willingness to suffer for their convictions, where did it come from? Are we honestly saying it all came from a corpse that they had stolen? That stolen corpse was their inspiration. Their boldness, their self-sacrifice, it came from a rotting lie. Okay. I'm starting to feel like this is a bit tenuous. But how did they manage to keep the lie going over so many decades? As they, as they scattered under the hammer of persecution, as they parted, they went their separate ways. How did they keep the story together? How did they keep from contradicting each other? When they were under so much pressure for so long. And they weren't together to reinforce the lie, to reinforce the groupthink. Everybody got the story straight, remember? Okay, the tomb was empty, remember? How did they keep it together to the very end? After Judas committed suicide, there were 11 original disciples left. Over the next 40 years, 10 were killed for their faith, and the 11th died in exile. Alone, under the pain of death, decades after the fact, are we to believe that they held out to a man to protect a corpse that they had stolen? Charles Colson went to jail for his part in the Watergate scandal. If you remember Watergate, it's the scandal that brought President, U.S. President Nixon down. Okay, he was impeached off the back of that scandal. Charles Colson went to jail for his part in Watergate. This is what he writes. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, 12, he's including Paul. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. 
they would not have endured it if it wasn't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. That's his conclusion. Let me put one final question to the objections. There's ample evidence for the resurrection. Where's the evidence against the resurrection? Or are we simply assuming it away? Assuming it didn't happen? And just rejecting any evidence to the contrary? Because there's some inconvenient truth in this story. If you are skeptical here this morning... Let me say to you, one skeptic to another, and I am a died-in-the-world skeptic, always have been, always will be. One skeptic to another, go and look at the evidence. Go and look at the evidence. Because either Jesus rose from the dead, or he didn't. There's no middle ground here. Either he did, or he didn't. And if he didn't, let's eat and drink. Tomorrow we die. If he did, it changes everything. If he did, we can say with Paul, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? If Jesus rose from the dead, then every movie should end with a good guy who wins. That's a story that reflects the underlying structure of reality. That's a story that reflects the shape of history. But we need to bring it home. And with this we close. What about your story? How are you going to face death? Which you inevitably will. One of the books I read as I was thinking about this was written by a man called Ben Shaw. He started writing in June 2019. That same month he was diagnosed with cancer. In the months that followed, he had to go undergo a horrible uh, facial reconstruction surgery and he lost all function in his left eye. We pick up the story about a, le- a year later and I, we pick it up in his words. In April 2020, I underwent six weeks of intense radiotherapy, a treatment that required a hospital visit five days a week. At the end of those grueling weeks, I was then given the devastating news that the radiotherapy hadn't worked. The tumor was still growing, and now I was in real trouble. As I write this, I'm currently three months into having immunotherapy. It's really the last thing the medical world can throw at my cancer. Even if it works well, it's highly likely that my life will be considerably shortened. I'm yet to find out whether the treatment is working or not. I'm telling you all this for one reason. I, too, have had to reconsider Christianity. Having death on my very own doorstep has forced me to do a serious reassessment of my faith. Do I really believe this stuff? Is it all just wishful thinking? 
Did Jesus really say and do all the things that the Bible claims? And did he really die for me and rise from the dead a few days later? In short, my cancer has forced me to reconsider the integrity and credibility of my beliefs. Yet in the end, far from having been shaken, I can honestly tell you that having this life-threatening illness has actually sharpened and increased my faith. As I stare at the possibility of an early death, I am in fact more confident than ever in these things. This book isn't just an academic argument for me. It's a very sincere and personal one. Everything is written from a deep, road-tested conviction that this stuff matters more than anything else in the world for me and for you. Ben Shaw died in June 2021 and the testimony of his closest friend was that he died trusting wholeheartedly in the victory of his Lord Jesus Christ over all of death, especially his own. He died trusting Jesus. My hope and my prayer is that that when the day comes, you will too. Because the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself, is inviting you this morning to put your trust in him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for conquering our oldest enemy. Thank you that because Jesus lives, death is dead. Help us to treasure this wonderful news. Help us to rejoice this Easter. And Father, if anyone here is skeptical or doubtful, help them to see the importance of weighing the evidence. And when they do, lead them to the truth. Lead them to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for them and who three days later rose to give them life. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.